When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello folks, Dominic here. Once again, the events of this episode are uncertain in terms of dating and chronology. Akhenaten's heresy may have taken place early or late in his reign, and it could have happened in a short amount of time or over the course of many years. In 2020, it is still uncertain. There is no scholarly consensus. So, bear that in mind as we dive into Akhenaten's most infamous decision. The king dies not, who is mentioned by reason of his achievements. King Sinusarit I, circa 1950 BCE, in his white chapel at Karnak, dedicated to Amun, king of the gods. One day, around 1347 BCE, a group of men came to an ancient Egyptian temple. They were masons, stone carvers, who worked for the king and served his royal house. On the ruler's behalf, these masons carved hieroglyphs and images for temples. They recorded texts on walls of stone, as monuments or achievements, by which a king and a god might live forever. It was important work that helped create the sacred spaces of temples, of tombs and monuments, the stonemasons were agents of immortality. Today, though, they came with a different purpose. One day, around 1347 BCE, royal stone carvers arrived at temples in the city of Waset, aka Thebes. Here, at temples like Karnak or Luxor Temple, they erected scaffolding against walls and columns. They clambered up the scaffolds to reach images, hieroglyphs and reliefs that depicted the great gods, specifically the god Amun, lord of the southern city. Standing proudly on walls, wearing a crown of tall feathers, Amun was a majestic figure whom kings had honoured with statues, texts and paintings. He was a mighty being, lord of many sanctuaries. His image was everywhere. Not for very long, though. On this day, around 1347 BCE, the Masons erected scaffolding near the images and texts related to Amun. When the scaffolds were ready, the Masons clambered up, drew forth their chisels, and began to work. They placed the metal against the stone, where hieroglyphs recorded the names of Amun. Then, they began to hammer their chisels, chipping away at the glyphs. These men were removing the names and images of Amun, Lord of Waset, King of the Gods. Apparently, they were doing this on the orders of Akhenaten. It was a program of erasure directed at Amun, one that was unlike any that had happened before. What was going on? Hello everyone, welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 133, The Heretic King. 
Today we explore a strange event that took place sometime in Akhenaten's reign. On an unknown day, the king of Egypt issued a proclamation, one that has made him infamous. On his order, Akhenaten's agents, sculptors and masons travelled throughout the country, visiting major temples and shrines. Their job was to erase the name and figure of Amun, the king of the gods, wherever they found it. This project is perhaps the most controversial of Akhenaten's reign. Today we dig into what happened. What exactly was Akhenaten's heresy? This is the second to last episode about Akhenaten and his reign. It has been a long journey, but the end is in sight. So, sit back and relax for the penultimate chapter of Akhenaten's life. This episode was brought to you by Cheryl, Ramon, and Annabelle, who kindly donated to the podcast. Folks, you are too generous. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Hopefully, offerings to Aten will bring you good fortune and prosperity for your household. For your safety, I will avoid giving prayers to Amun. By the last years of his reign, Akhenaten was well ensconced in power, and his religious and political ideas seem to have been fully developed. However, there are still many questions lingering around his actions and his intentions. The story of Akhenaten's heresy, his attack on Amun, is a complicated one. And to make sure we are all on the same page, I need to do a recap of things leading up to this moment. In chapter 1, we will explore the history of Amun as a god, where he came from, how he grew so prominent, and so forth. We will also briefly cover the history of Akhenaten in relation to Amun, the way the king approached this god before he decided to erase him. The king's earliest years give us hints about his attitude to Amun and the other gods, and these are vital to understanding the heresy as a concept. So, to make sure we are all on the same page, I will quickly recap some of those concepts. For those of you who've been following the story since the beginning, and do not need or want a refresher on Amun, feel free to skip ahead to chapter 2. There is a timecode in the description for your benefit. Amun was old, really old. Originally, he had come from a group of deities that existed before the universe came into being. Amun and Amunet were the male and female halves of a hidden force, one that permeated the universe and helped form the nature of reality. The word Amun, or Imen in Egyptian, can mean different things in different contexts. The most common translation is hidden, or the hidden one, but it can also mean secret or conceal, depending on spelling. However you render it, the root idea seems to be that Amun and Amunet were invisible, unknowable forces. You could not see them, but you could feel their presence and their power. Like the wind that blew from the Sahara, Amun was a mysterious but ever-present force. Amun was old, prehistoric, primeval, 
but he came to political prominence about 500 years before Akhenaten. Back in the 11th and 12th dynasties, aka the Middle Kingdom, rulers started building chapels to this god. The most famous example of an early Amun shrine is the White Chapel of King Senusaret I. Here, artistic reliefs showed the king in the presence of Amun, along with other male deities like Horus, Ptah, and Min. Together, these gods placed the crown upon Senusaret's head and embraced him as king. In other words, Amun had joined a group of august royal gods, and rulers legitimised their power by appealing to those gods. Amun's temples started off small, but they were powerful symbols nonetheless. We see this most clearly in the texts that Senusaret used for the god. The White Chapel at Karnak bears the first known example of a new title, one that applied to Amun and gave him special status. In this shrine, hieroglyphs proclaimed the idea of Imen Nesut Necheru. This translates as Amun, King of the Gods. The new title marked the deity as a supreme being, a creator above all. It also gave rulers like Senusaret a valuable tool to legitimise their authority. When Amun, King of the Gods himself, blessed Senusaret and set a crown upon his head, the mortal ruler gained an air of divine legitimacy. Amun was a valuable symbol, a useful instrument in the royal toolbox. As the decades and centuries passed, Amun's prestige quietly grew. It is hard to measure exactly how influential he was, because many of the texts and monuments relating to him are lost, destroyed or repurposed by later rulers. So we don't know what the trend was exactly during the late Middle Kingdom. All we can say is that Amun, king of the gods, continued to enjoy prestige and honour. Generations of kings worshipped him and added to his temple in small ways. Over time, the god and his house became prominent and wealthy. The Middle Kingdom ended, generations passed, and Egypt's ruling family changed. By the time of Dynasty 18, the start of the New Kingdom, the power of Amun had grown into a potent force within the area of Thebes, ancient Waset. Throughout the 18th Dynasty, great rulers donated lavishly to the House of Amun. The most famous example would be Hatshepsut, who used Amun as a political tool to legitimise her authority and claim power as a king of Egypt. Hatshepsut commissioned massive obelisks at Karnak Temple, and she gave gold, wood, incense, and all good things to the cult of the god. Valuable goods, expensive and difficult to obtain, flowed from Egypt's foreign territories and trade connections, and many of these goods came to the house of Amun. So, the wealth of Amun's temple grew as various rulers added to his house. Amun, the father of kings, ruled a prestigious domain, and various rulers benefited immensely from the god's reputation. Finally, something else changed during the early 18th dynasty. Amun, the hidden one, king of the gods, began to appear in a slightly new form. 
texts began to refer to the deity by a new name, Amun-Ra. This was a combination of Amun and Ra, the god of the sun. It is not clear exactly when this idea began, but 18th dynasty tombs started to include references to Amun-Ra, Lord of Heaven, Lord of Eternity, Lord of Waset, Thebes, and Lord of Truth, aka Lord of Ma'at. The idea of Amun-Ra seemed to combine two distinct but supremely powerful deities, and this hybrid being became something greater, almost a universal god, or a soul creator. Now, that theology gets complicated, and I explored some of it in episodes 116 and 117. For the rest of this episode, we simply need to know one thing. For about 100 years prior to Akhenaten, the idea of Amun-Ra, a hybrid deity of sun god and hidden force, was gaining popularity. As each of these developments took root, the god Amun became more and more connected with the image of royal authority. By the time Akhenaten came to power, the god Amun-Ra was a supreme figure in the Egyptian religious world. And so we come to Akhenaten. Having established the power of Amun, king of the gods, let's briefly recap how Akhenaten, king of Egypt, viewed this all-powerful deity. When Akhenaten first came to power, his name was not Akhenaten at all. He took the throne as Amun-Hotep, a name that translates to Amun is satisfied, or perhaps even May Amun be pleased. The translation of this name, and other royal names, is complicated, and it can affect how we imagine the image and power of a ruler. Either way, the young man who became Akhenaten was, at first, a conventional king, Amunhotep, the god who rules Waset, or Thebes, a king like any other. At first, King Amunhotep, later Akhenaten, had a relatively normal relationship with Amun. Hieroglyphic texts from the very start of his reign show the king standing before Amun in his guise of Amun-Ra. One of these texts proclaims how, quote, Amun-Ra, king of the gods, has given to you life, prosperity, and authority. The king referred to himself as, quote, beloved of Amun-Ra, lord of heaven, ruler of eternity. It was standard stuff, classic royal propaganda. But it was not long before the new king's image and his attitude towards Amun started to change. Soon after he came to power, the new king began to promote the sun god Ra above all other deities. He particularly worshipped Ra as, quote, Ra, Horus of the two horizons, rejoicing in the horizon in his name of Shu, one who is in the Aten, in Karnak Temple. End quote. This long and complicated name contains a wealth of information that I won't dive into here. If you would like to know more, we covered this in episode 110. For now, let's stay on the big picture. The new king favoured Ra, Aten, above all. On the surface, this might be relatively normal, just another ruler giving gifts to a god as part of his religious role. But the young Amunhotep clearly had a different idea in mind. 
Texts discovered at Karnak Temple seem to record a speech that the young ruler made early in his reign. This speech was remarkable because it seemed to suggest that the king not only favoured Ra or Aten most, he also thought the other gods were no longer important. This fragmentary text tells us, quote, Behold, I, the king, am speaking, so that I might inform you concerning the gods. I know their temples, and I am versed in the writings, specifically the inventory of their ancient bodies. And I have watched as they, the gods, have ceased their appearances, one after the other. End quote. The king spoke about the gods' bodies, and how they were no longer effective in the world. There are two possible interpretations to this. On the one hand, Akhenaten, or Amunhotep, might have been saying that the gods' images, their statues and totems, were no longer effective, that the power of God appeared in a different form, aka the Aten, or sun, high up in the sky. In this interpretation, Akhenaten was focused on the symbols of the gods, their physical forms, rather than their existence per se. He may have been clearing house, so to speak, on older iconography. The second interpretation is more extreme. In this perspective, Akhenaten not only denied that the gods' statues were effective, he fundamentally denied their existence. If a god appeared primarily through the medium of their image, their symbol or statue, then the failure of those statues was akin to the failure of the god. In other words, Akhenaten's speech might have indicated that the deity's physical forms were losing power, and so were the beings themselves. I think the first interpretation focused on the symbols and statues is more likely, because Akhenaten referenced other deities in his propaganda. Even if he thought that divine statues were no longer effective, he still used symbols and ideas of various deities. Ma'at, Shu, Tefnut, and Horus all had a place in his worldview, or at least the language he used to express that worldview. So, in my perspective, I think Akhenaten was more concerned with the images of the gods, with the statues and symbols, and what they implied about those deities on earth. At the very least, I think this is what he was expressing in his speech early in the reign. Anyway, Akhenaten, or Amunhotep, declared that the gods' statues were losing power and he emphasised the worship of Ra in his name of Shu, who is in the Aten. Basically, he was giving his favour, his royal patronage, to the sun god above all. Alongside this lip service, he also put his money where his mouth was, and made his dedication to Ra clear in economic terms. To emphasise his commitment to the sun god, the new king donated vast resources to new temples for Aten. Apparently, he even took resources from other temples in order to support his own. According to texts, the new king diverted wealth and personnel, like priests, from the sanctuaries of other deities. He sent these to staff and support the temples of Ra, or Aten, that he was building. 
This redistribution was a significant move. It showed how the king was focusing his resources, not on Amun, king of the gods, but on someone else entirely. Ra, the Aten, was gaining political and economic prominence because the king valued that god above all others. So the king's relationship with Amun started positively, or at least neutral. Over the next few years, though, it began to degrade. As time went by, the ruler of Egypt introduced more and more decisions that changed fundamental aspects of the temple economy and the king's relationship to the great god Amun. Naturally, the king's religious, political, and economic policies prompted some resistance. Eventually, Amunhotep decided that he would no longer honour the city of Waset or Thebes with his presence. He would leave this city of Amun and move somewhere else. And at the same time that he abandoned Amun's home, he also abandoned Amun's name. In regnal year 5, King Amunhotep rebranded as King Aken Aten, effective for the Aten. It was a significant move, both symbolically and politically. With that decision, Akhenaten effectively reset his own reign, starting a new phase in which the Aten was supreme. It is entirely possible that year 5 is the moment when Akhenaten launched his attack on Amun, king of the gods. We cannot be sure because the date of this project is unknown. But scholars like Donald Redford, who led excavations in the Aten temples at Karnak, believe that year 5 is the most likely date for Akhenaten's heresy. Others take a different view, and we will discuss all of that in chapter 2. But it is worth noting. So, the king of Egypt changed his name and abandoned the symbols of Amun in regnal year 5. Not long after that, he left Amun's city and temples and moved north to a new location. There, far from any traditional centre, Akhenaten established his palace and temples for his sun god. This was Arket Aten, the horizon of Aten, the new centre for the cult. Again, this is a complex and detailed story that I am skimming over rapidly. If you would like to know more, earlier episodes have you covered. So, looking back, we have a relatively clear trend. At the start of his reign, Akhenaten was a conventional young ruler, and he presented himself as the son of Amun-Ra, whom the great hidden god had given power and authority to rule. But over time, Akhenaten's views had changed. He began to ignore Amun and focus more and more on the sun god, Ra, or Aten. Eventually, that caused all kinds of problems, and the king changed his name, moved his palace, and set up a new home far from Amun's city. All the while, the king was gradually focusing more and more on his favoured deity. Whatever Aten was exactly, or what it represented, the king clearly viewed it as a supreme being, one that he would honour above all other gods. Eventually, Akhenaten's views about Aten and about Amun reached a tipping point. We are not sure when exactly, but at some point, Akhenaten issued a command. 
a command that has made him infamous, that has earned him the title the heretic king of ancient Egypt. What Akhenaten did and why is a complicated matter, but in its simplest terms, it seems that Akhenaten decided to erase the old god Amun. The king would remove the name and image of Amun from monuments all over Egypt, and in doing so, he would deny that god his power. How Akhenaten did this, and why, is the subject for chapter 2. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 2. The year was 1347 BCE, approximately. It was year 16 of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Nefer Keperu Ra Wa En Ra. The son of Ra, Akhenaten, great in his lifetime, the king who lives in Ma'at. Pharaoh was now in his early 30s, probably, maybe. He had been in power for a decade and a half, and in that time, he had instituted many, many changes to the imagery and expression of royal power. Changing his name, changing the art, changing the god whom he favoured most. Akhenaten was big on the rebranding, the reforming, the renewing of older ideas. Eventually, the king changed something that he probably should have left alone. Akhenaten initiated a project that has made him infamous and earned him the title the Heretic King of Ancient Egypt. What he did is relatively simple, I could describe it in one sentence. For some reason, Akhenaten decided to erase the name and image of Amun, King of the Gods, from temples throughout the land. That is the entirety of what he did, and if you are just here for the cliff notes, that is all you need to know. But of course, erasing Amun, erasing a god, was a big step, and Akhenaten's decision might seem shocking, a crime of the highest order. What exactly was going on? At some point in Akhenaten's reign, we do not know when, the king issued a proclamation. 
What he said is unknown. No text or monument survives to record the king's instructions. All we know is the basic result. One day, presumably on Akhenaten's instructions, royal agents left the city of Akhet-Aten, Amana, and travelled to different parts of the kingdom. They went north and south, visiting major temples, shrines, and even tombs scattered throughout the land. And when they reached these sites, the king's agents erected scaffolding, clambered up walls, columns, gates, and halls. They drew forth chisels, and, with great vengeance, began to hack away at hieroglyphs and images. The saboteurs attacked four types of symbol in particular. First, they attacked images of Amun that appeared in artistic scenes. The great god would appear as a human male wearing a beard with a tall crown made of feathers. Wherever they found it, Akhenaten's agents chiseled this image away, removing the god from various depictions. Secondly, they erased the hieroglyphs that spelled Amun's name. Three glyphs, a reed leaf, or eye, a gaming board, or men, and a ripple of water, or n, are missing, marking where the god's name used to appear. The masons attacked each glyph, hacking it out with their chisels. Thirdly, Akhenaten's agents erased symbols that were connected to Amun in tangential or philosophical ways. In particular, they removed images of a bull, sometimes spelled as Ka. This relates to Amun as a divine figure connected with the kingship, and with the myths of birth which related to individual kings. It gets into some complicated theology, but long story short, Akhenaten's agents removed symbols that were connected to Amun and to the theological ideas around him, as well as removing the more explicit images of the god. Last, but definitely not least, the king's masons attacked a specific title associated with Amun. They attacked the title Nesut Necheru, aka King of the Gods. Amun, King of the Gods, was an old title, dating back centuries at this point, and apparently Akhenaten took issue with that title. In many instances on monuments related to Amun, that particular title is erased, sometimes quite violently. This act is obviously quite significant, it goes above and beyond anything that Akhenaten had done previously. And obviously, we want to know, what exactly was Akhenaten trying to achieve? Well, because we do not have any texts related to the king's instructions, historians have to study the patterns of erasures on the temples themselves. By examining the various monuments and the patterns of damage, we might be able to reverse engineer some of what Akhenaten was doing. So, in order to get a sense of what Akhenaten maybe tried to achieve, let's take a look at a particular monument, one where the damage is still visible. To get a sense of Akhenaten's project, let's visit the Temple of Luxor. Luxor Temple is a massive structure just south of Karnak, in the modern city of Luxor, ancient Waset or Thebes. The temple's official name was Ipet Reshit, aka the Southern Sanctuary, 
It seems to have emerged during the 18th dynasty as a place where the kings of Egypt celebrated their particular spirit, or Ka, and venerated their connection with the great god Amun. In other words, Luxor Temple was a centre for worshipping the great king of the gods and the great king of Egypt. It is also an excellent example of what Akhenaten tried to achieve when he erased Amun. At Luxor Temple, great kings like Amunhotep III had commissioned elaborate colonnades and shrines dedicated to the god in his form of Amun-Ra. As you can imagine, the structure was covered with hieroglyphs and images relating to that god, to the stories which kings told about him, and to the iconography of his divine power. Akhenaten's agents attacked many of these symbols. When you visit the grand open-air court of Luxor Temple, have a look at the columns that surround it on three sides. At the top of each column, you will see a cartouche, the cartouches of Amunhotep III, Neb Ma'at Ra, the father of Akhenaten and a most magnificent king. Every column bears one of Amunhotep III's royal names. On some columns, we see the name Amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, beloved of Amun-Ra. On other columns, we see his second name, Neb Ma'at Ra, or Ra is the Lord of Ma'at. Depending which column you look at, the king's cartouches are either intact or damaged by Akhenaten's agents. The cartouches saying Neb Ma'at Ra are fine, no erasures there. But the ones that say Amun-Hotep, beloved of Amun-Ra, those bear the unmistakable mark of the chisels. Within these cartouches, there are a variety of hieroglyphs spelling out the various words which relate to the great king's power. Akhenaten's agents attacked three symbols in particular, the three letters that spell the name Amun. Now, what is interesting about this is that they did not erase the entire name of Amun-Ra. When they looked at the name, they could see four glyphs, the I, the Men, the N, and the Ra. Put it together, you get Amun-Ra. Akhenaten's agents removed three of those four glyphs. They removed the I, they removed the Men, and they removed the N, but they left the Ra alone. So it seems that the masons, or carvers, came to this temple with very specific instructions. Remove the name of Amun, but leave the name of Ra. Working backwards from that, we can get a sense that Akhenaten had a particular issue with Amun, but other deities were going to be left alone. So, this begs the question, what was Akhenaten's issue with Amun? Studying the various patterns of erasure, scholars have noted that Akhenaten's agents seem to attack a few concepts in particular. They remove the name of Amun wherever they find it. That's fairly self-explanatory. They also remove the image of the god. Again, easy to understand. It's the other things that they remove which give a hint about Akhenaten's priorities. Because the king's agents erased symbols like the bull, or Ka, related to Amun, we could get a sense that maybe Akhenaten had an issue with the theology of Amun. 
If Amun was connected to the nature of divine kingship, or even to the origins of a king's particular birth, perhaps Akhenaten wanted to erase that idea. Perhaps it did not fit within his view of what an Egyptian king was. Secondly, because the royal agents removed the title King of the Gods, we can get a sense that maybe Akhenaten took issue with the prominence or status of Amun, particularly how it related to other deities. Akhenaten was obviously very fond of the sun god, Ra or Aten, however you want to refer to it. The fact that he removes the name Amun, but not the name Ra, suggests that he has some particular problem with Amun. And the fact that he removed King of the Gods gives us a clue that, perhaps, one of Akhenaten's issues was how Amun related to the other deities. The idea of having a King of the Gods did not exactly fit with what Akhenaten had been saying about the status of Aten, or Ra. Clearly, Akhenaten viewed the Aten as a supreme being, a universal creator, one above all other deities. Whether Akhenaten denied the existence of other deities is an open question, and you can interpret it a couple of different ways. But however you look at it, it is fairly clear that Akhenaten saw the Aten as a supreme deity, beside and above whom there was no other. So Amun's title, King of the Gods, clashed quite explicitly with the ideas Akhenaten was promoting. From that, we can make an educated guess that one of Akhenaten's priorities was removing a title that threatened the status and supremacy of his favourite god. Amun was a problem, and he was out of Akhenaten's favour, but Amun king of the gods, that was perhaps a theological threat to the supremacy of Aten. Akhenaten's attack on the god Amun was violent and specific. However, it also plays into a larger question of the king's religious beliefs. Specifically, what was his view on the other gods generally? The ones who were not Aten, the ones who traditionally filled out the pantheon. Depending on the book or source you read, many authors will suggest that Akhenaten erased every god from the temples and monuments of Egypt. Unfortunately, this is a bit of an exaggeration. Based on studies of the monuments themselves, at least the surviving monuments, there are instances where Akhenaten's agents damaged images of gods besides Amun. The most common figure is the goddess Mut, who is the wife of Amun and a major part of his cult. Images and hieroglyphs relating to Mut were definitely erased, at least here and there. So that one is fairly clear. But when it comes to the other gods, the thousands of deities within the Egyptian pantheon, there is a lot less evidence for Akhenaten's heresy. If we look broadly at the temples which survive from Dynasty 18, it seems like the king's project was directed at Amun far more than any other god. To be fair, many of the 18th Dynasty temples that survive 
come from places like Karnak and Luxor, or northern Sudan. And many of these monuments were the ones dedicated to Amun. So the evidence is skewed towards the cult of Amun. We know more about his temples than any other deity. But even with that evidence bias in mind, it does seem like the king's attack was directed at that god more than any other. As an example, we can look at the temple of Karnak. The walls and shrines of this magnificent complex included images and references to numerous deities from all across the pantheon. Although Karnak overall is a temple for Amun-Ra, there were plenty of instances where other deities appeared as major figures in the art. Temples in Karnak, like the Ark Menu of Thutmose III, seem to be mostly intact, as far as we can tell. Granted, I haven't studied this monument closely in person in this regard, but working through photos of the Ark Menu, it seems like Akhenaten's agents did not damage this structure much at all. There are even cartouches and references to Amun that seem to be intact. What this means is that Akhenaten's attack on Amun is surprisingly inconsistent. Although authors will talk about the king banning or erasing all of the other deities, the surviving evidence actually tells us a lot less than we would like. It seems fairly clear that Akhenaten attacked Amun specifically, and Mut as that god's consort. But when it comes to all of the other deities, there is a lot less evidence for Akhenaten's heresy. So if the erasures are inconsistent and not applied to all of the gods, what does that tell us about Akhenaten's motives? What is the significance of these erasures in the big picture of the reign? Throughout the first decade of his rule, Akhenaten had slowly revealed one idea after another, relating to Aten and the gods overall. Early on, he had indicated his view that statues or images of the deities were no longer relevant or effective in the world, and the king seems to have believed that the visible sun, the Aten up in the sky, was the truest or purest expression of the divine power. Moving forward from that, the king does seem to have slowly abandoned older or outdated ideas and references related to the gods. He gradually began to purify the cult of Aten, making it slightly more abstract and somewhat more unique in terms of how it expressed itself. None of this necessarily means that he did not believe that other gods could exist. It is very difficult to say whether Akhenaten was a monotheist or simply focused on one god above all. But clearly, his attack on Amun represents something quite significant, a major shift in his thinking. Previously, he had been happy to ignore Amun, or perhaps starve the god's temple of resources in order to fund his own projects. But now, he was going after the god himself, effectively erasing Amun from the historical record. 
Something must have motivated this, but unfortunately, we have no idea what that was. To get a full understanding of Akhenaten's motives, we would need to know three things. Firstly, we would need to know when did he issue his order to erase Amun. Secondly, we would need to know what exactly did his decree say. And finally, we would need to know who was the audience of this particular decision. Only with all of this information could we begin to truly understand what the king was trying to do. If we knew when Akhenaten performed his deed, we could identify the context, what was happening in Egypt at the time, what ideas the king was expressing, that sort of thing. And if we did not have the timing of the decree, then knowing the audience of his program would still help a great deal. If we knew whom Akhenaten was speaking to, the people who were influencing his decisions, that would help. And if we could figure out which individuals he aimed his decree at, we might be able to reverse engineer some of his motivations. Finally, even if we did not know the date or the audience, many problems would be solved if we just knew what the king said. A stone stealer, even a scrap of papyrus, might give us information about the words that Akhenaten used when issuing his instructions. From that kind of source, we could see how specific the king's guidelines were. Did he want his agents to erase all the gods, or just Amun, which the erasures seem to indicate? If we could see all of this, and how the king justified it, we would be able to understand a great deal of what exactly was happening. Unfortunately, we have answers to none of these questions. Scholars can debate the likely timing of the event, but they cannot be certain. Likewise, the people around Akhenaten, the ones influencing him and hearing his decisions, are shadowy at best and anonymous at worst. And of course, there is no text that even begins to record the king's words when he ordered his agents to work. In short, when it comes to the when, the who, or the what of this decision, we know nada, zip, and zilch. Sometime in his reign, maybe earlier, maybe later, Akhenaten gave instructions to his stonemasons that they should visit the temples of the land and erase the name, images, and symbols related to the god Amun. Other deities may have been affected by this decision. Unfortunately, much of the evidence is missing or lost, and scholars have yet to put together a cohesive picture of what was erased, where it was erased, and how. With this fragmentary evidence in mind, we should speculate at least a little bit about what Akhenaten may have tried to achieve. Akhenaten's heresy, quote-unquote, has prompted a massive amount of speculation. Ever since scholars determined that the king had tried to erase Amun, they have wondered endlessly whether this was some kind of monotheistic revolution. The idea of Akhenaten being the world's first monotheist is a million-dollar idea, 
one that prompts TV deals and gets books published on a fairly regular basis. It is a worthwhile question, and understandably, scholars have a lot to add to this particular discussion. However, it is quite difficult when looking at the evidence to figure out whether Akhenaten really cared about the other deities, or whether his issue was with Amun specifically. Depending on the source you read, some scholars will state the case much more forcefully than others. They will say that Akhenaten definitively banned all of the gods except for Aten, or they will say that he definitively banned Amun and did not care about other deities. The truth is, there is no scholarly consensus on this particular question. There are a variety of explanations, and different scholars argue more or less forcefully for different interpretations. This leaves us in a tricky position. How do we, the podcasting public, interpret Akhenaten's project? I will briefly discuss three possible interpretations for what Akhenaten was doing. The first and most obvious explanation has to do with religion, theology. Many scholars looking at this situation interpret Akhenaten's attack as a kind of pogrom or persecution of Amun. They view it either as an attack on Amun specifically, or an attack on the gods, plural, as a concept. This interpretation, the monotheism idea, is a tricky one, and I will explore it in more detail in episode 135. For now, the gist of it is that Akhenaten might have attacked Amun, king of the gods, as a way of rejecting the idea that other deities existed or could challenge Aten. This explanation does seem to answer some questions, but it doesn't fill every gap. And depending how you view Akhenaten, he can seem more or less concerned by the idea of other gods. So, this explanation is complicated, and it doesn't fill all of the gaps. The second possible reason is politics. Some scholars suggest that Akhenaten was trying to consolidate power, gathering authority to himself and denying it to anyone else. In this interpretation, the attack on Amun was part of a larger program to revive the authority of kingship and challenge the power of other social groups. The most common target in this theory is Amun's priesthood, the men and women who served Amun-Ra and worked in his temples. The idea goes that Amun's priests had grown so wealthy, so powerful, that they threatened the authority of the king. In this version of events, Akhenaten attacked the temples of Amun specifically, to remove the threat which that group posed. This theory is complicated, and in my opinion, unsatisfactory. The idea relies on many assumptions about the power, quote-unquote, of Amun's temples, and the role that his servants, the priests and priestesses, actually played in society. Long story short, Amun's priesthood was probably not as powerful or unified as this theory might suggest, and the idea that they threatened the king's authority does not, in my opinion, fit with the available evidence. 
Again, this is a complicated question, and the political interpretation can go in different directions. I will return to this one as well in episode 135, when we consider the legacy of Akhenaten, the things he was trying to achieve with his reign overall. Finally, there is a third explanation, but it is not a modern one. It has to do with a text left by a later pharaoh that allegedly describes the nature of Akhenaten's heresy. This text is called the Restoration Stealer. It was commissioned by King Tutankhamun, the successor and possibly son of Akhenaten. Early in his reign, Tutankhamun and his government issued a proclamation relating to the failures of Akhenaten's regime. Part of this text describes the condition of Egypt in the reign of Akhenaten. It says, quote, When his person, Tutankhamun, appeared as king, the temples and the cities of the gods and goddesses were fallen into decay and their shrines were fallen into ruin, having become mere mounds overgrown with grass. Their sanctuaries were like something that had not come into being at all. Their buildings were a footpath, for the land was in rack and ruin. The gods were ignoring this land. If one prayed to a god to ask something for him, he did not come at all. And if one beseeched any goddess, she did not come at all. The gods' hearts were weak because of their bodies, and they destroyed what was made. End quote. As you can imagine, generations of scholars have accepted this text as proof of Akhenaten's heresy, or scrutinized it minutely for evidence of his political intentions. The truth is, Tutankhamun's restoration stealer tells us very little about what Akhenaten was intending. It also does not give us much reliable information about what the king actually did. The stealer says that temples had fallen into decay and become mounds overgrown with grass, that some of them were so denuded they were basically footpaths. Of course, looking at Karnak or Luxor Temple, it is fairly clear that Akhenaten did not do that. The temples were left standing, but parts of their texts and images were erased. Quite a difference from what Tutankhamun was saying. So, using the restoration stealer as evidence for Akhenaten's heresy is tricky. On the one hand, King Tutankhamun had a very clear motive for presenting things as negatively as possible. The worse that he described the condition of the temples, the better he appeared for restoring them to their glory. Additionally, the political fallout of Akhenaten's reign is extremely complicated, and when we dive into it in just a few episodes, we're going to see how tricky this material can get. So, the three reasons that are commonly put forth, the monotheistic interpretation, the political conflict idea, or simply the disappearance or banishment of the gods that Tutankhamun describes, each idea has its merits and its problems. All three of these ideas may have some kernels of truth, and even if one of them does not explain every single question, it's possible that there is a combination going on. Unfortunately, it is an extremely big question, and to understand it, we have to be looking at Akhenaten's reign overall, because there are many different parts that go into this particular idea. 
So, the question of Akhenaten's motives, his reasons for attacking Amun, are difficult. We can make guesses based on the damage to temples and the patterns that those erasures reveal. But when it comes to figuring out motives and specifics, there are still massive gaps in scientific knowledge. All we know is that at some point, stonemasons visited various temples, shrines, and tombs in different parts of the kingdom. There, they erased the names and images of Amun and his title, King of the Gods. They deleted a couple of other symbols as well, relating to Amun and to his consort, Mut. But they also left many intact, and the masons themselves were not especially thorough in their work. Many monuments that should have been damaged seem fine, and although I have not studied these closely in person, it seems like Akhenaten's servants maybe did not get to every single structure before the job was cancelled. When it was cancelled, and why, is a story for the next episode. Sometime in his reign, Akhenaten, king of Egypt, tried to erase Amun, king of the gods. This may have been part of a larger theological shift, a drive towards recognizing one god, either a god who existed by himself, or a god who was superior to all others. Either way, Akhenaten seems to have attacked Amun for reasons that are probably related to his favourite god, Aten or Ra. The attack on Amun is perhaps the most extreme expression of what Akhenaten believed, the most visible damage to the traditional cults and images that made up Egyptian royal society. Attacking a god, attacking the king of the gods, was a massive step, something that went far beyond what Akhenaten had already done. It was, in many respects, Akhenaten's greatest crime, and it was probably this action that earned him the resentment, the hatred, and the damnation by subsequent generations. Later rulers would refer to Akhenaten as the enemy, and in popular culture today, he is frequently called the heretic king of Egypt. It is easy to see why this might happen. Even if we do not fully understand Akhenaten's motives, his attack on Amun was a great crime. It went against various theological principles about the nature of reality and the place of the gods within that. It also contradicted royal propaganda and the relationship between gods and rulers, which generations of kings had worked to develop. In other words, Akhenaten's attack on Amun was an affront to established tradition, to order and justice, and perhaps from some perspectives, an attack on the fabric of reality itself. To someone who believed in the power of Amun, Akhenaten's attack may have seemed like the very definition of an affront to Ma'at. From this perspective, it is not hard to see how the pharaoh of Egypt might become an enemy.
Thank you for joining me on the History of Egypt podcast. Next episode, we come to the big moment, Akhenaten's death and the end of his rule. It has been a long road, but the pharaoh's time is running out. How he dealt with affairs in his last months and his plans for the succession will be our next story. For now, we come to the end of this episode. There is an epilogue attached at the end for subscribers on Patreon at the Overseer and Higher Tiers. This epilogue is a short discussion about some academic arguments regarding the date of Akhenaten's persecution. It gets a little bit into the weeds of scholarship and how different people argue one way or another, so I cut the material from the episode for time. If you are interested in hearing about how the academic sausage gets made, so to speak, then this little epilogue might be of interest. Otherwise, it is time to wrap things up, and I have some thank yous. The research for this episode was supported by many people. Special thanks must go to Linda, Neil, Ellen, TJ, Terry, and Kevin, my priest-level backers on Patreon. Folks, you are too generous. The temples of Artem groan under the weight of your offerings. The sun god surely smiles upon you, and hopefully Amun does as well. To everyone who supports the show on Patreon.com, my eternal thanks. You keep the coffee flowing and protect me from having to get a real job. I am most grateful, and I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. That is all from me, and I will see you soon for episode 134, The Death of Akhenaten. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.